to visit with you and share the word with you this morning. I do bring you greetings from Cornerstone Church and from Union University. I have heard of you from afar, or at least from Josh and others, and then my wife coming and meeting a number of you ladies. So it is a privilege for me now to get to come and see, see what is going on, see what the Lord is doing in your midst, and to be encouraged by it to be encouraged by just God's work here and hearing various things. So uh, I hope you will be encouraged as well. Uh, the Lord is faithful in all that he is doing. And this morning, I want us to look at Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2, as uh, Pastor Dan has mentioned, this second psalm, and it's very fitting that we sing about standing amazed in the presence of Jesus when we come to a psalm like this, which is centered on the glory of Christ. While you're turning there, and before I read it, let me just give a little kind of setup and background before we get there. This, this psalm is one of the ones quoted very frequently in the New Testament. It stands here with Psalm 1 at the beginning of the Psalter, introducing us to what else is going to come here. This book, which is a gathering of prayers and songs to instruct us as the people of God how to pray and how to praise. So this psalm sits here. Psalm 1 opened with introducing us to the fact that God has spoken, and so we must pay attention to his word. Psalm 2 then comes and says, And God has his anointed one established, and so we must submit to him. There is a word, and there is a king. And when we come to the New Testament, we discover they are the same. And so Psalm 2 functions here in this way. Now, uh, the New Testament tells us that David wrote it, and no doubt, when it's first used in, amongst the people of God, it is speaking about David, whom God has established as his king. And from the story of David, you know there's all sorts of opposition. And so this psalm speaks of the fact that God has established David, and God is going to uh, secure his reign in spite of the, those who would fight against him. And yet this psalm, sort of like Saul's armor, sits a little big on David. He can't fulfill it all. And so as we look at this psalm and as the people of God across the ages have looked at this psalm, they noticed we need someone else to come to fill this out. And of course, that is great David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus. And so it speaks to us of the reign of Christ. So with all that in mind, let me ask you to stand once more, if you will, in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word here at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together once more. Father, we are grateful for your word and the opportunity to gather around it and therefore to gather in your presence this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. We need to hear from you and no one here really needs to hear from me. So strengthen and enable me, please, to speak your word as it ought to be and make it clear to us and give us ears to hear that we might be reminded of the fact that we might revel in the glory of Christ and his supremacy. And even, Lord, call people to faith in your Christ. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is a strong psalm. And in some ways may make people in certain settings a little anxious with all this wrath and fury and crushing and breaking. And yet here it is at the beginning of the Psalter, instructing us how to pray and how to praise. And since this is a psalm and uh, thus a piece of poetry, it's sometimes a little more difficult to go really phrase by phrase through it. We need to see the whole and how it works together. And so I'll try to take the whole and look at it from one angle and then turn it just a bit and see another angle and turn it again and do that while still trying to catch the flow of thought the climax at the end. So to jump right in, the first part here, the first three verses, or first bit, points out to us the first main point, that the world seethes with rebellion against God and his Christ. It's seething. This this picture here of the nation's raging, all that's going on here, uh, this strong picture tells us right away what to expect In this fallen world, it's a reality that this is the response of the world to God and to his lordship. These nations rage, they plot. The the rulers, the kings of the earth, the rulers, they take counsel together, they scheme. How can we keep from being under the authority of this God? This is our reality. It has been since the fall. The seed of the serpent fights against the seed of the woman. And we need to be aware of that. In some sense, we are aware of it, but sometimes, even amongst believers, people are a bit surprised. Wait a minute. The the culture doesn't seem to like us so much. The the world is unhappy with us. What shall we do? But this is the reality. And if we are surprised by it, it simply exposes our ignorance of the word. Not to put it too delicately. Because the Lord has told us this. In 2 Timothy, when Paul said to Timothy, all those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. It often doesn't show up in those little books of of God's promises. That promise, I haven't found in there yet. But it is in this book. It's a promise. Or Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. This psalm says the same thing as that text in the Gospel of John. In this world there is tribulation, 
But it goes on to talk about the fact that Christ has overcome the world. So this is a basic point of how we need to understand and to see life. The reality that we ought not expect the world to be pleased with us as we seek to obey God. That's not to say that we then need to be cantankerous. You know, the kind of approach of nobody likes us and so we'll just be difficult anyway. And it excuses us for being rude and harsh. And uh, the more people hate us, the better we're doing. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we need to get over the desire which creeps so easily into the hearts of many of us, me included. The desire to win popularity contests with our culture. It's just not going to happen. There will be times when the watching world can appreciate and respect some things that the church does. We see that in the book of Acts when the people held them in high esteem and yet feared to join them. But that comes not when the church is seeking the approval of the world, but when the church manifests the fear of God. Because the Lord said, those who honor me, I will honor. Respectability or approval is one of those things that you can't catch when you chase it. And so long as we chase it and we make decisions based on what will, what will gain us a hearing, what will cause people to like us, if we're thinking this way, we're ignoring this central reality. The world seethes in rebellion against God and against his Christ. Know it. Expect it. And therefore, we cannot seek to win popularity contests. We must seek to be faithful and then let the Lord do his work. But let me move to a second point. It's still there in verse 3. We need to note why the world rebels. The fact of the rebellion we've mentioned, but we need to note why. And even before I say why, I'll mention another little piece of this. It states this fact, and it tells us we shouldn't be surprised by it, but the psalmist does marvel at it. Why do they do this? Well, there's the fallen world, of course, but why would you rebel against the sovereign God? It's just not smart. This is instructing us as well how we should respond. It should be surprising to us, not that people are in rebellion against God, but the folly of fighting against him should be readily apparent. Because there's going to be a tug at our hearts to say, yes, I don't want to submit. I might want to rebel or a pull to join them, but we need to be reminded of the folly of this. We should speak in the same language of this psalm and saying, do you not see how futile this is? It's just meaningless. There's no point in fighting against him. But why, why does the world rebel here? Because we find the same temptation in us. It's there in verse 3, where he says, let us burst their bonds. These are the kings speaking, their bonds, that's uh, the Lord and his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do they say? Let's find a way not to be ruled by this God. We want to cast off his bonds. He makes demands on us. How dare he? This we see here, our culture's common idea that what it means to be free is to have no one telling you what to do. This is a common idea. It seeps into the church as well. But it is anti-Christian. Because fundamentally what it means to be a follower of Christ is to bow the knee to this Lord. 
and to resist this siren song of the culture, trying to pull us with them to rebel against the bonds that God puts upon us. This idea that says, I want to just be my own master. We see it all the time in various places. I had a young man when I was doing uh, youth ministry. He'd, he'd come to faith there in that ministry and was growing, still a number of challenges and some difficult settings he was in. And he came to me one day and finally said, I've had it with people telling me what to do. I am going to leave home and go join the Marines. I considered what I might say to him. The first thing was, oh, no, you can't. No, no, just say. You go right on ahead and uh, let me know how it goes. God has made this world. Not just the ground and the trees and the air, that too. But God has created humanity. And he has put his structures in it so that authority is a basic reality of life. And a key mark of grace in our lives is willingness to submit to proper authority. The world here is represented as trying to throw all of this off. As if they were saying, how dare God tell me how to act in this part of my life or that part of my life? I will do my own thing. Which reminds me as well of a number of years ago being in Lowe's Home Improvement Store. And looking for something, I don't remember what, and seeing across an aisle, this person with a T-shirt on, and the front part of the T-shirt said, I don't have a problem with authority. I knew that was a setup for something. There had to be something on the back of that T-shirt. And so I began to try to, you know, carefully position myself to see the back of the T-shirt. Probably looked like some creepy stalker in the store. But eventually the person turned, and I saw the back of the T-shirt that said, I am the authority. And I wanted to, but I didn't. I wanted to go to the person and say, wow, that's an interesting T-shirt. But I noticed that your saying isn't attributed to anyone. Would you like to know who first said it? I imagine the person would say, well, sure. And to which I could have responded, Satan. (laughs) This comment comes from him. When he first ever rebelled against the Lord and said, I will do my own thing and was cast down and will spend an eternity in hell. Your t-shirt has the stench of sulfur to it. But this is the idea, which is so common in many places, reigns in our culture. This is what is said in verse 3. This is what these rulers of the earth are saying. And we are tempted to follow that way. I find it in my own soul behaving something like this. Of course I affirm the Lord's lordship. I've been taught that. I affirm the Lord can tell us how to live. The world rebels against that, but I know better than to say I don't believe that. I'm happy with God's abstract rulership. But it's when he makes specific commands then I'm, you know, I can start to wiggle. But even I'm happy for God to be very specific in dictating how you should live your life, just maybe not mine. We can be a bit like the deacon of the church that I pastored in Wisconsin who came to me after a sermon, and he said, Preacher, 
I don't know why you've been preaching on all these little sins. And I wonder when you're going to start preaching on some of those big sins. You know what the difference is, don't you? And I could tell by the twinkle in his eye he was going somewhere. So I said, no, I don't know, but I think you're about to tell me. He said, the little sins, like what you've been preaching on, are the things I do. And the big sins are the things that other people do. I wish you'd start preaching on some of those big sins. Well, he was kidding, but it's easy for us to begin to think that way. It's easy for us, perhaps, to be willing to tell other people how the Word of God should guide their life or maybe where it's not. And we need to do that. We need to make sure we're also hearing how it dictates to us about our lives. Hearing, having a sensitive heart as it cuts across our grain. Because this rebelliousness is at the heart of the wickedness of the world and ought not characterize the church. In fact, let me give you a Spurgeon quote. I want to play off that. Spurgeon said, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? Submission to Christ in all areas of life is a primary mark of grace. And so as we apply that to our lives in a variety of ways, it's a good one to point out to the children who are in our midst. You may think sometimes there's a lot of things you can't do that other people do, and they sound neat and exciting. But one of the primary marks of God's grace in your life will be your willing and happy submission to the authority of your parents. It is no small thing. When you submit to your parents and you obey them, maybe in something that doesn't seem all that cosmic, but when you obey, you are advancing the kingdom of Christ. Because this is a mark of grace. It is contrary to the world. We can live this out in all sorts of situations. But there's a a piece here that I want to hit on. It's something I've come to refer to as the great lie. By which I mean a great lie that's out there in the culture. There are plenty of those there. But one that has seeped into the church in many ways. And it's rebelliousness of a different sort. It says something like this. God's ways are right. They're just dull. You see, this rebel either knows too much or isn't brave enough to really seek to cast off the Lord's bonds. He says, yeah, we ought to do them. There's no joy in it, but we ought to do it. The pagans have all the fun, but they go to hell. So we'll endure now and miss out on everything, but then we get to go to heaven. Wouldn't you like to join us? (laughs) But this is a great lie. And some might say, but hey, it's, it's faithfulness. It is not faithfulness. It is an insult to a good and gracious Heavenly Father who has redeemed us. And the mere pull ourselves up by our bootstrap obedience will only get us so far. Because we have been created in such a way as that you and I, we will pursue whatever we think will bring us satisfaction. Some approaches to sanctification or growth in godliness say, well, we've got to get over that. You can't get over that. God made you that way. 
What we need is the renewing of our minds so that we understand obedience to God is what will bring us the greatest satisfaction. And then we will be freed to pursue that. This is why the great lie is so much trouble. Saying, okay, God's bonds are there and we can't throw them off, but we don't like them. The psalmist in Psalm 119, this, this unbridled praise to God's law, his rules. He said, my heart runs in the path of your commands because you set my heart free. God's bonds are not just right. They are that, but they are the path of life. They are freedom. And if we run along those and say, oh, I wish I could just, if I could really be free, I could get outside of God's commands, then we're much like a locomotive, if it could talk. Maybe it's Thomas. Um, Running along the rails and saying, oh, sure do wish I could run across that meadow. That would really be free. I'm stuck between these rails. I got to go where it goes. I wish I could run across the meadow. Well, you know what happens if a train jumps its tracks and goes in the meadow. It's stuck and useless and does no good. It is only free and useful and, in fact, powerful when it stays in the rails. That's the way it is with us. The Word of God are these, is this rail guiding us and freeing us. But we must have that right in our minds lest we be pulled into being part of this world's rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. There's our first two points. The world is in rebellion, why it rebels. But then a third thing I want you to see, God's response. It starts there in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. This is one of the few, perhaps the only place in the scriptures it talks about the Lord laughing. And this laugh, though, is not the humorous laugh. I've had a lot of those this weekend uh, here with friends and others, what's going on. A lot of good laughs, and those are great. That's not what this is, though. This is that laugh of derision, laugh of mockery. We need to make sure that our view of God has a place for this, because he just told us he does it. And we need to get the picture. Notice it was the rulers and the kings of this world, not just... Nobody's. The powers of this age have mounted together and formed a confederation to oppose the Lord. And they have said, we will cast down his anointed. Recognize our power. We are significant. One day, it seems it was a morning, I can't remember, several years ago with my older boys, I'd read this psalm, and I'd stopped at verse 3, and I was trying to set up this whole thing. The, the world and all its power and all its might has declared war against God, and they intend to cast God down. And what's going to happen? I wanted to get them really into it. And then I said, so, boys, what, what do you think God's response is? No answer. So then I said, well, do you think he's scared? And I said, no, Dad, he's God. Well, exactly right. In response to all this foment and rebellion, the Lord laughs. That's a way of demonstrating this is folly. you got to be kidding me. It would be as if we were walking out here, you were walking out here after the service, and three or four, let's even say five, ants came up. And they said, we're going to take you down, big boy. 
Now, I have to hurry to say, actually, the analogy doesn't work because if ants did say that to you, I'm sure it would frighten you. <laughs> but if we can grant talkative ants, and they were to say, we're taking you down, aren't you trembling in your shoes, boots, as the case may be, you would think, no, place your shoe properly, crunch, you're done, and you move right along. The powers of this world assembled against the Lord and his Christ are just like that. Impressive to themselves, but nothing in comparison to God. We need to get this well in our minds, that God is not intimidated. Because this text is given to us to pray. We don't have to remind God that he's not intimidated, but we need to remind ourselves that he's not. You may be a bit like me. My theology on this is sorted out. It's there. It lines up. But in practice, I can tend to think that God's in control so long as I am. But when things are outside of my control, I can begin to question whether or not God's still in control. I know better than that. I just don't always act better than that or think better than that or feel better than that. We need to be reminded of this point of where he is in his power that no matter what comes and all the rebellion that we see around us, and we do see an increasing rebellion and darkness, and there's a temptation to resort to fear and to, to uh, wring our hands and say, oh my, what will we do? Well, in particulars, we don't know what we will do, and we don't know what this will look like. But in big picture, what will we do? Hold fast to our God who reigns and will not be dethroned. That's what we will do. It's this psalm that the early church turns to They're in the book of Acts, about chapter 4. When they, the persecution has been ratcheting up and finally they've been told, you may not speak in this name of Christ again or else. And the first thing they do is they gather for a prayer meeting. And when they gather according to the scriptures, they pray. Psalm 2. Now, there's another thing here I'm not going to chase, but I just want to point out. Notice part of what they did is they prayed the Psalms. This has been a very beneficial thing to me over the last couple of years of just psalm by psalm, taking it, reading it, and turning it into a prayer as it teaches me how to pray as God would have me pray and leads me to praying things I haven't thought about praying before. But God has given this to us to guide us. And the apostles saw that. They took up Psalm 2 and said, this tells us what to say here. Because just like in this psalm, so also in their day, the rulers of the earth were conspiring to thwart the work of Christ, saying you may not preach in his name. So they prayed the psalm and asked the Lord for boldness. And the place was shaken. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Surely the apostles here teach us one way to apply the psalm to ourselves. You know in your own setting, your own ways, national news and world news, a variety of places in specific terms where the world is in rebellion against Christ, saying you may not do this. You may not call sin, sin. You must endorse this. You must do this. You must not do that. And this psalm is here telling us, don't give in. Stand firm. We do not know what will happen to us. The body they may kill, but God's truth 
abideth still. The king is secure. And the king will advance his kingdom. If people at work mock your faith, for whatever reason, perhaps because, you know, it's just come on, we're going to change these numbers and change the report just a, little, just a little bit, it'll be fine. And you say, I can't do that. And it seems odd. Or maybe in social settings, at college or at school, in some other setting, the people mock you because you hold fast to a biblical morality and you're concerned about purity. And others are saying, that's so old-fashioned, that's weird, why do you do that? Or people work together and plot and scheme even to ruin your career. I've watched this happen to myself. And they make these efforts. What will we do? We will rely on the Lord who reigns. He will accomplish all his pleasure. Now the fact is, we may be vindicated in this life or we may not be. But there is an eternal situation where all things will be made clear. And we must live by faith in that. In these kind of settings that this psalm pictures and Acts 4 picks up, we need to be reminded of the might and the omnipotence and the sovereignty of our God. We need to pull up this text. We need to pull up others like Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Or Psalm 46 that was alluded to earlier in the service. Here's a few verses from that psalm. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should give way, and though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, the nations made an uproar, the, ne- the kingdoms tottered. He raises his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. That same picture If everything else falls away or falls apart, the Lord of hosts is our refuge. As I've been just trying to live in the Psalms for myself, I hit again and again what seems to be one of the most common descriptions or words used for God in all the Psalter is refuge. And then you put with it rock, fortress. The scriptures that God inspired prayers and songs given to us keep pressing on us to remind us that God is a hiding place. One morning as I was reading that one more time, it hit me. If the Lord keeps telling me there's a hiding place, he assumes I need to hide. He assumes there's danger, there's threat, there's fear. I need to know that the Lord is a refuge. It doesn't take much living with our eyes wide open to know that. He is this refuge. Psalm 62, 5 to 8. My soul wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Or outside the Psalms, Jeremiah 20, verse 11. It's become a favorite of mine. 
You know, Jeremiah, who God calls to a task. We think, that's great. God call you to a task. And he says, Jeremiah, here's your job. I want you to preach till everything falls apart. Thank you. And he talks about people plotting against him. But in Jeremiah 20, 11, he says, But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Now, this is not about vengeance, but this is about knowing that the Lord is a warrior and he acts on behalf of his people. So we can be confident and we can stand fast no matter what comes our way. It would do us well to remember some of the past about how God has dealt in order to fortify our souls. And there are hundreds of examples. Now, just a few in the Old Testament. Pharaoh rises up to destroy the people of God. And one Pharaoh decides to drown the baby boys in order to assimilate the people. But it's another Pharaoh just a little bit later who ends up drowning himself at the bottom of the Red Sea because God will preserve his people. Or coming out of the scriptures, you go to ancient Rome when the empire eventually decides to, de- to destroy Christianity. And we all know Rome has fallen and the church is not. One of their emperors, Diocletian, he did a number of things. He, he had a medal that he had uh, struck, and it had an inscription on it, the name of Christians being extinguished. That was his claim to fame. Only probably not many of us are real familiar with Diocletian this morning, but the Christians are still around. He set up two monuments, and there's an uh, inscription on both of them. I'll just read one of them. He wrote, or had written, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti. Which is just a big fancy name trying to say, I am all that. Exalting himself. For having extended the Roman Empire in the east and west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. He made a name for himself, which is largely forgotten. But the name of the Christians continues. The Lord preserves his people. Or, last one, uh, Voltaire, famous uh, writer. In his work, he uh, said, with all the new learning that's coming and people are catching on, the Bible's really falling out of uh, favor. And before long, the Bible will just disappear. It will be irrelevant. Nobody will pay any more attention to the Bible. Several years ago, I heard that his old home, because he is now dead, his old home was owned by a Bible society which was using it to store Bibles as a warehouse in order to ship them around the world. He who sits in heavens laughs. Surely, if there's evidence of the humor of God, it's there. These things aren't accidental, but providential. The Lord is at work. He is not frightened by the schemes of his enemy, so neither should his people be. But in the Lord's response, there's not only his laugh, There is also his fury. Because he says there in verse 5, after saying he holds them in derision, then he says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Verse 7 goes on to have uh, the anointed, so Christ himself speaking. And there in verse 9 then, he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is what we talk about under the 
teaching the doctrine of God's punishment. His wrath is coming. We need to know this as well. I mean, that's strong there. These people who are in rebellion against God, when God speaks to them, it will be in his wrath. And he will terrify them with his fury. That's not a fun doctrine, necessarily. But it is a biblical one. And it is a crucial one for us. It's a crucial one for us to hold on to and to see what he says here. All this assembled power will be broken before the Lord like an iron rod hitting a ceramic vessel. If you see somebody swinging this iron rod against a pot, the thought doesn't cross your mind going, I wonder which one will break. Now you know what's going to happen. That's why if you have little ones and they picked up a, a golf club and they're swinging it around, around things, you move. Because you're not thinking, oh, my club might break. You know it's going to break whatever it hits. So what is here? This is certain and this is sure. And of course it's true. You are taught well about uh, the truth of God's judgment coming, but you also know in the culture around us, many people pull back from that and find it uncomfortable. But this is crucial. It's crucial for a variety of reasons, and one of which is to cause us to stand fast. There will be times, there have been times in the past, when it looks like darkness is overcoming the light. There will be certain portions of the light which will be overcome. Some die. Some are oppressed. And in those settings, we may be tempted to think, the Lord is not handling this. But we need to have that big picture and know. No. The vengeance is his, and he will repay. We need that many times in order to bolster us in difficult obedience and also to cause us to trust him with dealing with people who are in opposition to him or to us. We want to take the vengeance for ourselves, but we need to remember he will do this thing. This is crucial for our own forgiveness when we wrestle. Some of you, no doubt, have been in situations where people have done terrible things to you in one way or another, and it is difficult then to forgive. And I think one reason why we struggle to forgive is because being made in God's image, we have this sense of justice. It's not right. It's not right for that. And we feel like they got away with it. They're not punished in some other way. So the only way for me to punish them is for me to hold my grudge. And I'm going to nurse it real good. And that is how I will make sure they get theirs. But this is trusting in ourselves and not trusting in the Lord. And the fact is, you know, the only person that will really harm is you. This is why he tells us we need to know the reality of what the Bible teaches about God's justice. God will handle these things so you can let go. But what's interesting about this, when we take seriously this God's wrath, his fury, his terrifying, his crushing, it will allow us to release our grudges and forgive And instead of envying the wicked, which is another key concern in the Psalms, we find ourselves there sometimes. The people who are willing to cheat, they get ahead. The people who are willing to do these things, they seem to get all the good stuff. The reality of God's judgment will keep us from envying the wicked, allow us to forgive, and even move us then 
to call those people to faith and saying, why would you die? No matter what has been done to me, what is coming for those who continue and persevere in their rebellion against God is far greater than anything we have ever seen or could ever imagine. We ought to look at the doctrine of God's wrath long enough to tremble and therefore to be able to say with an utter sincerity, flee from the wrath to come. No matter what you've done to me, you can imagine what is yet to come. And that leads me to this last point, that this psalm closes with an evangelistic call. I hope you notice that. He said that he's going to crush them who are in rebellion. So at verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. What kings? Those kings from verse 2 who have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Who's that? Verse 2, the rulers who take counsel together. The statement about God's wrath leads the psalm directly to, in light of what's coming, you rebels, hear now, be warned, be wise. Don't continue in this foolish rebellion. But instead, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And no doubt this kiss the son is, a, is this picture of submitting to him, owning him as Lord, laying down your weapons and coming to him. Proper glorying in the conquest of Christ doesn't lead us to demeaning others. It leads us to calling them to turn away from the rebellion and instead come to this Christ. This Christ who is the conquering king and yet allows an opportunity for rebels like all those rebels out there and like us, to come to him and to be made new. This, then, is proper biblical evangelism. Not the sort that I saw too much along the way, and no doubt you've seen as well. It says, you know, <clears throat> Jesus has done so much for you, and, you know, he'd like to be good to you. Won't you help him out? He's gone to so much trouble. It's going to hurt his feelings. If you don't pay attention to him, it's what I call the poor God approach. It's well-intended. It's just not biblical. And it fosters an idea that we're doing God favors rather than what you see here when it begins with the Lord reigns, ultimate reality. You and the rest of the world are in rebellion against him, but it's not going to get you very far. The conquering king has landed. He is taking out all opposition. His kingdom marches on. And I can tell you, everyone who has stood up against him, we use some examples, Pharaoh, Rome, Voltaire, they have all been destroyed. And that king is coming this way. If you continue to hold your arms and be in resistance and rebellion against him, you will be destroyed. It's no question. So throw down your weapons. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And he goes on to say, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Don't toy with him. But throw down your weapons and he will receive you. And if we are sharing this message, or maybe if you're hearing this message and you're not yet a believer, various objections no doubt come to our mind. There's an enemy of our soul who doesn't want us to hear 
And sometimes you'll say, well, you know, he's not really angry. God's nice. He doesn't get angry. The Bible will make it very clear. This text and many others, he is angry about our sin. He's not uncontrolled. He's not out of control. He's holy. And therefore, he will most certainly judge, destroy all sin. Part of what's odd in working with our own soul, we have this objection, something like he's not angry. And as soon as that's dealt with, it flips over to the other side. Oh, yeah, 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 he is angry. He's too angry. He will never accept you. No. He has a furious wrath against sin. And yet the whole point, of course, of Christ's coming was to redeem for himself a people out of this lot of rebellious individuals and to make them his own, to make them his very children, to adopt them into his family. And so the evangelistic call is flee to Christ, lay down your weapons, submit to him, and he will receive you. That's true for you today if you don't know him. The call is there, and it is essentially why would you die? And as we believers share the gospel with others, this is the direction we need to come from. We are not being called to give God a chance. He doesn't need one. He has established his king. He's doing just fine. Thank you. But he has graciously given us a chance. And he calls for us to repent and believe. But notice, just at the closing, that with this strong statement, and verses 11 and 12, again, even with that evangelistic appeal, are very strong about the destruction that's coming. It closes with a blessing. It closes in beauty. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When the Lord comes, there will be no refuge from him, but there will be refuge in him. So those of us who know the Lord then ought to revel and glory in this fact. We are those people who should be crushed with a rod of iron. And yet, because of his utter, free, sovereign grace and mercy, he has redeemed us. He has made us his own. And if we contemplate the reality of his wrath, we should all the more overflow with joy in his grace to us. And therefore also, be earnest to share that same message with others that they might not be a part of that rebellion but repent and believe and our souls should be fortified to stand firm in faithfulness to this king who does win pray with me please father we thank you for your word thank you for speaking to us we are feeble and frail. We thank you for your might and power. We thank you that our security rests in you and not in ourselves. Help us then be faithful. Help us to rest in you. Help us to speak this glorious gospel with the boldness shown here with the boldness that our forefathers prayed for in Acts 4. Bless that work as you advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.